0: Hello, my name is Jeff Guy, and you're listening to the podcast, Surgery ICU Rounds. The um, One of the most commonly uh, used numbers when somebody inserts a pulmonary artery catheter is the SVO2, and this is a number that uh, if I had to ignore all the other 30-some-odd uh, variables that this one uh, produces, this is probably the one that I would be the most interested in. And It's always intriguing to me um, how on rounds uh, people... Uh, at the bedside, really ignore the utility of this SVO2 number. So, I, I want to spend a few minutes at least talking about what SVO2 is and, and how we use it and, and how uh, you can use it to improve outcomes, hopefully, at the bedside. Uh, what SVO2 is, is it's the uh, uh, saturation, uh, mixed venous saturation of oxygen. And what happens is on a fiber optic pulmonary catheter, you have a uh, um, a little light that's emitted. And what that does is it uses basically a reflectance spectroscopy and will give you uh, a saturation of the blood at the tip of the pulmonary artery catheter. And given the fact that the catheter sits in the pulmonary artery, we call this mixed venous saturation. And we've talked about some of the importance of uh, venous saturation and mixed venous saturation when we talked about the surviving Sepsis guidelines. And, and a typical mixed venous saturation could be say, we'll just make it 75% there are physiological things that can make that uh, SVO2 go up and things that make that SVO2 go down. What all happens too often is I'll walk into a patient's room and you'll see uh, one of the screens set on the SVO2 monitors and it's the screen typically has all the different variables, you know the cardiac output, the SVRI, the, the DO2, the VO2 all these other variables and SVO2 will be sitting there up in the corner. The real benefit of SVO2, in in my opinion, is looking at the trend of that number. Is that number trending up or is it trending down? If somebody's SVO2 goes from, say, 75 to 70, over a period of say an hour or two hours both of those numbers may be kind of quote we call in the box They both might be normal but that trend downward is pretty telling It can be a, a rather early warning that your patient is making some sort of physiological change and the, the idea is to, to uh, address that before it becomes problematic until your SVO2 is say 50. Well what is SVO2? Again we said it's the amount of oxygen that's returning to the heart prior to getting reoxygenated by the lungs. And what are some of the things let's talk about things that will depress that first of all. For instance, if if you imagine we talk about the classic box cars and if box cars are going out to the periphery and oxygen's getting off and then it returns back to the the heart, there basically more oxygen has gotten off of the hemoglobin molecule. So the 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 SPO2 is dropping The blood is going out to the peripheral tissues. More of the oxygen is getting extracted prior to it coming back to the heart. Well, let's think about things that will basically decrease oxygen delivery or things that will increase oxygen consumption. And those are the things that are going to end up resulting in a decrease in your your SVO2. Things that are going to decrease oxygen delivery are going to be things like anemia, Things such as a low cardiac output, and both of those can result in a low SVO2. Hypovolemia is another. Um, a problem that can result in a drop in the SVO2. I can remember as a surgical resident making rounds at night with one of my chief residents and he would see that downward trending, say from a 75 to a 70, and he would, I don't know, he would just, I, I thought he was God at that point when you're an intern, your chief resident, but he um, said, you know, this patient's gonna watch their urine output, they're gonna have problems with their urine output in the next couple of hours, and of course it was something like an APR and you know, statistically, yeah, they're going to have that problem and you're an intern and you don't know any better. But more times than not, he was right and finally I asked him one time and he actually showed that, you know, the SVO2 is downward trending. And, and that's very physiologically accurate that people who are hypovolemic will have a low SVO2 and you'll see that downward trending. So things that are going to drop your SVO2, low cardiac output, anemia, hypovolemia, things that are going to increase your oxygen consumption, things such as a fever, are going to extract more oxygen off that red blood cell. That's going to decrease your SVO2. Um, other things that are going to decrease it, things like shivering, are going to decrease your SVO2 as well. Things that are going to increase your SVO2. So that comes back... Uh, perhaps higher than it should be. Perhaps the most common that we see is sepsis, where we're not seeing adequate peripheral oxygen utilization. There's a lot of theoretical considerations as to why that is. In a burn unit, one of the reasons why we see an increase in your SVO2 is uh, cyanide poisoning. What happens in cyanide poisoning is a cyanide bind cytochrome AA3 of the electron transport chain. And what happens then is the electron transport chain cannot really um, it backs up the Krebs cycle, and then you're left just uh, um, anaerobic uh, glycolysis, and therefore you're not extracting a lot of the oxygen. So the oxygen goes to peripheral tissues; it's not being extracted and goes back uh, to the central circulation with a higher than normal SVO2. One of the things you need to be mindful of is that when you are calibrating these devices, that the nurses are aspirating back the blood. What happens is you end up drawing a let's call it an in- uh, vivo calibration or in the body calibration and the nurses draw a venous blood gas from the distal port of the pulmonary artery. They do this at a very slow and usually standardized rate. If they draw that blood back too quickly, what happens is, is they pull blood back retrograde past the alveolus. And what this will do is that you're basically measuring an arterialized it's not an arterial, it's, it's, it's a pulmonary artery, but it's an arterialized uh, form of blood because you've basically oxygenated by pulling the blood retrograde and therefore the saturation will be higher and then you'll falsely recalibrate your instrument at, at a higher level. And that's one of the things you need to be mindful of uh, when you're calibrating these instruments. One of the things that I always find interesting is that when we talk about, say, oxygen delivery, we've said in multiple podcasts before that shock is not defined by a blood pressure. Shock is is really defined as a flow or poor delivery of oxygen. And if we don't deliver enough oxygen to vital tissues such as heart, brain, lung, and kidney, we get oxygen debt. One of the things that used to be very popular in the 90s is that we would look at the oxygen delivery versus oxygen consumption we actually used to plot out a graft. Uh, and we would want to get the delivery to greater than 666 and the consumption um, uh, needed to be greater than 166. And we had what's called auction dependent or some auction delivery uh consumption actually delivery dependent uh consumption and that was that as we increase more delivery to the peripheral tissues we saw an increased rate of consumption um, and one of the things that was always interesting to me is that when we we'll have somebody who has a pulmonary artery catheter and I'm not a big fan of them because I'm not sure they improve outcomes and I think the the science is clearly there suggesting that they may not and I'm not sure exactly that it's the catheter that's the problem or the people interpreting the data that's the problem but you'll have somebody who has a pa catheter in and their hemoglobin sitting say at you know maybe uh, low 8s or 7 and somebody says i think this patient needs blood transfusion well you have a pulmonary artery catheter there and what are the oxygen kinetics telling you. You you put PA lines in there so you can learn something about the patient's volume status or cardiac performance, but it also gives you oxygen kinetic information. And if they're sitting there with an SVO2 of, say, 75% or 76%, and you calculate out their DO2, which is their delivery of oxygen, and they've got an adequate cons- consumption, then the real question is, and what clinically is telling you that that patient requires a blood transfusion? We've talked before, and we've presented the articles that, you know, is somebody suffering from symptomatic anemia? Not not do they have a heart rate of 110, but is their heart rate 130? Are they allegyric? Are they having shortness of breath or chest pain? Those are things that are, quote, symptomatic anemia. They don't have those, and you've got this, this device you've put through the patient's heart called a SWAN, and you're ignoring it in your decision analysis. To me, that's, that's pretty egregious. And so the thing I would ask is, what's the SVO2? What is the DO2? What is the VO2? And, if, and what's the things like the oxygen extraction ratio? If those things are all normal, then the next question is, and why on earth do you want to give a unit of blood? And what's interesting is that when people give a unit of blood, I want to know what that SVO2 has done after you've given it. If you think that the patient is in oxygen debt, and you give them a unit of blood, you would presume that by delivering that unit of blood, that you're improving the oxygen delivery. Well, there's some some fallacies along with that. First of all, is that the blood that we transfuse is not normal. It is not normal in its shape, and it's not normal in its oxygen delivery components. So if you gave a unit of blood you didn't see improvement in what we call oxygen kinetics, either in the delivery or the SVO2, should you be surprised? Well, based on everything we've taught you in previous podcasts, probably not. You should probably expect that as an outcome. One of the other numbers we have a lot of fun with on the swan gans catheter is the SVR and the SVRI. In fact, one of my uh, partners is a uh, cardiac surgeon. If you say SVRI, he, he begins to come unhinged and go into a very detailed physiological explanation. Um, but SVR is an interesting number. It's a vascular resistance. And what to talk about the number even in general terms is you have to know how the number was calculated and we have to go back to ohm's law this is back in high school physics so you remember from ohm's law that voltage equals IR, V equals IR voltage equals current times resistance and when we solve for resistance using ohm's law if you write this down it might be easier to follow but you have voltage over current gives you resistance so what is going back to voltage voltage is Basically, a potential step off, a potential gradient, and that's what voltage is. Well, how would you, how would you apply that uh, to cardiovascular physiology? Well, a potential step off would be the pressure, say uh, the mean pressure in your aortic root uh, minus the uh, pressure uh, in your right atrium, your central venous pressure, and that's what that is: mean arterial pressure minus CVP. Is the equivalent or the corollary, I should say, of voltage? Okay, so that is your V of voltage. Now that is over the current. Well, what would your current be? Well, in this situation, it would be your cardiac output. So if you take your mean arterial pressure minus your CVP, divide that that product. Uh, or or that divide that by your cardiac output, that gives you your systemic vascular resistance. Now, there's a couple of things about this that are rather entertaining. Is that what you're doing is you're applying an electronics principle to a pulsatile hydraulic system, and and to me, I think that's a little bit interesting. But the other element of this is is that if you were to take, for instance, a a uh, an animal and you put a tensiometer, say, uh, on their aorta and you've got your, um, your mean arterial pressure minus your CVP over your cardiac output. And keep the mean arterial pressure the same, say it's 80, your CVP is a 10, and that gives you a difference of 70, and you increase your cardiac output. So instead of having a cardiac output of two, your cardiac output now goes up to, say, five. Well, mathematically, what happens to your SVR? Your SVR in that situation drops, and it drops pretty dramatically. But if you had that tensiometer on that brachial artery or the aorta, does the tensiometer necessarily have to change? The answer is no. This is something called mathematical coupling, and we see this with a with a variety of other um, hemodynamic variables. Is that just because your SVR drops, it doesn't necessarily measure, doesn't necessarily mean that you've had a drop in the vascular your peripheral vascular resistance as uh, measured. By the tension of a peripheral artery or a systemic artery, because the cardiac output goes up. Now, what happens if somebody, for instance, is going into cardiac failure and their cardiac index goes from, say, 3 to 1? The same thing happens is that since there's an inverse relationship between the SVR and the cardiac output, as the cardiac output goes down, the SVR goes up. And it doesn't necessarily mean that the tension in that tensiometer on the aorta or the brachial artery has gone up. So when you try to interpret a number like SVR, the best thing to do is to take the equation, look at each individual number in there, and try to figure out what's wrong with it. Because, for instance, if our cardiac output went from, say, 3 to 1, And you've had a large drop in your SVR, uh, excuse me, a large increase in your SVR, does the patient need afterload or do they need an inotropic agent? Uh, And only by taking apart those numbers do you get a real sense of what is perhaps the best thing to do. Perhaps the last number that we want to talk about is the one that everybody focuses the most attention on, and that is the. Uh, pulmonary artery, pulmonary artery capillary wedge pressure or wedge and what the wedge is is we have a balloon sitting at the end of our catheter and it causes an occlusion of the pressure uh, an occlusion of forward blood flow in the pulmonary artery and by doing that we get basically a water column uh, uh, fluid that goes from the pulmonary artery through the lung past the alveolos into the pulmonary vein into the right atrium uh, and uh, uh, basically l- tries to measure the preload of the heart now when we go back to our basic physiology in undergraduate when we took the frog leg what well, the idea when we did those experiments in, in college was we isolated a frog gastrocnemius and we put it on a little tensiometer and we added weight to it and then we stimulated it with a uniform charge. And by adding weight, we're able to basically cause a greater deflection or greater twitch um, by um, loading that muscle to a certain point. And then once we overloaded it, we saw a decrease in the contraction of that isolated frog leg. Uh, And the idea there is that as you preload a particular muscle you get to a optimal sarcomere length. Remember sarcomere is the basic unit of a muscle. Uh, muscle is composed of actin and myosin and they overlap and I believe the optimal sarcomere length something is telling me in my brain is like 2.2 micrometers. I might be wrong uh... probably am uh... but what you're trying to do is by getting that optimal sarcomere length you're you're basically trying to get the optimal uh... overlap between actin and myosin if you were sitting here next to me if you interdigitate your fingers from one hand to the other if you can try to if you over if you overdigitate those fingers you lose optimal contact between the digits of each your left hand and your right hand as you spread them out too far it's just the tip of your fingers are overlapping but if you get the optimal contact between the actin and myosin, you get a greater force of contraction. And that's the idea of preload. Now in the heart, the best determination of preload is your left ventricular end diastolic volume. Left ventricular end diastolic volume is what determines your preload. And when you have an optimal preload for a particular stroke volume, you get a greater cardiac output. Now, let's going back to our wedge. We said it's pulmonary capillary wedge pressure. Now, one of the things that's always interesting to me is that if you look at your arterial lines you set up, and the nurses will understand this better than the doctors, because most doctors don't understand the biometrics of these things, but you have these extra-long tubings, and if you don't have your manometer, uh, your transducer set up at the flevostatic axis of the, of the heart, you get readings that are falsely elevated and lower elevated. Uh, But there are a lot of things that act on on the wedge. Remember, wedge is a sum of forces. So if you have somebody on high peep, that's going to artificially elevate your wedge. If somebody has a large abdominal compartment pressure, that's going to artificially affect your, your wedge. So that number is just kind of a relative number. Trends, again, being more helpful. Um, getting on a tangent here, if we talked about a, your favorite football team, and if your favorite football team won the first game of the year, uh, you wouldn't say, well, they're going to win the Super Bowl. You might, but just on that one game, you would say, no, that's just one game out of months of games. And so we need to look at you know, their record after 10 or 15 games to determine whether they're going to make the playoffs, not a single number. That's what we do often in intensive care units falsely. So we look at a single number and we think that we know which direction the patient is going. We have to get longitudinal data to say look over the period of say five or ten wedges this is what we're having. So we go back to this left ventricular and diastolic volume. Well what we are measuring is pressure. Okay. So there's a relationship between pressure and volume and so you would think that as we increase the volume the pressure would go up linearly. So if I increase my volume by one, my pressure would go up one. That if I increase my volume by four, my pressure would go up by four. That's a linear relationship. But when we look at the change of pressure over change of volume, and for those of you who are following this closely, that's a derivative, that the relationship is not linear. The relationship is exponential. So that if we increase the volume, say, by four, the pressure may go up by six. If we increase the pressure, say by 10, the the volume by 10, the pressure may go up by 20. It's an exponential relationship. The other thing that's interesting about um, uh, this change of pressure to change in volume. Change in pressure or change in volume has a name to define to it, and it's the definition of compliance. So when we look at the relationship between change of pressure and change of volume, we're actually looking at compliance of the left ventricle. Now if we take two or three people in an intensive care unit, there are people who can have big, floppy hearts that are really compliant, and people whose hearts are all filled with scar and being very poorly compliant. So a wedge of 15 in somebody who's young and healthy is different than a wedge of 15 who's somebody who has a heart replaced with scar and a reasonably non-compliant ventricle. That would translate into a, le- a different left ventricular and diastolic volume. The other thing is so you have variability of cardiac compliance among different patients in a given ICU at any given time. Now, there's another thing is that you can have variability of left ventricular compliance within a particular patient. Not between patients, but one particular patient. For instance, heart rate can change your compliance. So that if somebody's heart rate goes up, what happens to their compliance? Their compliance may go down. So a wedge of 15 to get the same volume, once they get tachycardic, may take a wedge of 18. Medications, xynotropes, dopamine, dobutamine, milrinone, all those will affect cardiac compliance. Ventilation strategies, using high pressure ventilations, will affect cardiac compliance. So what happens is, is that you have variability of cardiac compliance among patients and within patients. So, when you're looking at running something like a PA catheter, and you're looking at a particular wedge pressure, you have to realize that what is good for a, a particular wedge that's good at 8 o'clock in the morning may be a different physiological scenario at noon. And so, when you hear these, these very rigid, do this to wedge of 15, then do this, it, it basically takes out of the equation or out of the thought process interpatient variability and intrapatient variability. Now given that we have such problems with wedge because of compliance issues and and, and external forces like PEEP and so forth, there's another assessment of preload called the end diastolic volume or end diastolic volume index. And we said that what determines preload is end diastolic volume. So if we could measure that or calculate that, then that would be a better assessment of preload, right? So, how do we get end-diastolic volume? Well, we have to go back to our, our, our basic cardiac output equation. And remember, again, if you want to write this down, because if you were here, I would make you look at the equations, is that you would take cardiac output times heart rate times stroke volume. Cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume. We want to solve for stroke volume. So, we put cardiac output over heart rate gives you your stroke volume. Well, that is how much blood my heart squirts out per heartbeat. Well, we said that what determines the preload is the end diastolic volume. So for instance, so let's take our our equation of cardiac output over heart rate equals stroke volume. If we add to the denominator the ejection fraction, okay, so we have cardiac output over heart rate. Every time that heart gets uh, ready to beat. uh, Cardiac output um, over the product uh, of heart rate times ejection fraction. That gives you your end diastolic volume. If you want to make your end diastolic volume index, you change the equation to cardiac index over uh, the product of heart rate times the ejection fraction. That would give you your end diastolic volume index. Now, how this is determined is that uh, the uh, swans that calculate EDVI uh, have an ultra-rapid thermistor, and they have a sensor that breaks down the heart rate. It, uh, about 10 years ago, when you put one of these swans in, the swan itself actually had a, a chest lead that you would apply, you use a red dot, and everything else, you would apply it to the chest. And the cardiac, when you get a cardiac output curve, it breaks apart the cardiac output curve heartbeat by heartbeat. And it has to detect that in order to be able to calculate the ejection fraction. And that's where you get the EDVI number from. It is figured that the EDVI number is um, uh, perhaps more resistant to some external forces such as pressure uh, and PEEP and so forth. There are some of the same issues regarding uh, uh, Mathematical coupling with the EDVI. If your cardiac output goes up, uh, your EDVI goes up, and, and and the like. The other some of the other determinants that have made EDVI catheters not as sensitive as perhaps they should be are patients who have very low ejection fractions and some septic type st- states. You won't see very reliable EDVI numbers. Also, conditions in which you have an irregular heart rate, since the uh, PA catheter and the computer has to break down the cardiac output curve based on the heart rate, if it's detecting an irregular heart rate and not sensing every QRS complex, the calculations will also be screwed up. And so that's where you, that's how mathematically you get the EDVI catheter and some of its strengths and weaknesses as well. So we spent about um, uh, 23 minutes going over some very preliminary aspects of some of the very most common numbers uh, associated with PA catheters. You can see that there's some inherent air uh, in these catheters, both in, on the actual catheter measuring, and there's some inherent error that can be used in interpreting the data. So uh, they're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. You've been listening to the podcast, Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Associate Professor of Surgery at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. also have other podcasts, uh, particularly on the topic of uh, pharmacology. Uh, and it's an accompaniment uh, to a textbook that's uh, coming out soon, and it's uh, Pharmacology for the Pre-Hospital Professional. And that can also be gotten at uh, uh, through iTunes uh, by searching Pre-Hospital Pharmacology. Have a good day. Thank you.